how would you go about saving the world? If you had maybe a genie with some wishes, maybe if you had a cape, I figure they're the two things you need to be able to save the world, a genie or a cape. What would you do to save the world? How would you do it? Uh, It doesn't take long when you turn on the news these days to realise that our world is a total mess. Turns out that was true even before coronavirus was a thing. Uh, Plenty of evil going on in the world, governments oppressing their citizens, uh, racial violence, structural injustice, genocide, uh, intractable intractable problems of of poverty, uh, widespread patterns of abuse in all its forms, including in institutions like churches that should be at at the far end, the running away from all that kind of stuff. And all that's just human impacts on other humans, let alone what we might be doing to the rest of our world. Uh, If you had the power to save the world, to fix all of this, how would you do it? How would you rid the world of evil and bring forth justice? What do you reckon the silver bullet or the the mechanism for this is? Is it uh, some kind of legislation? Uh, Is it better political leadership? Is it economic reform? Is it wholesale revolution? Uh, Ancient Israel hoped for the whole world to be put to right, uh, put to rights, uh, and their uh, hope was in a Messiah who would do that. This was their solution, the king who God had promised, the one who would bring an end to oppression and evil not only for Israel but for the whole world. He was the one who would bring the kingdom of God But how was the Messiah going to do that? That wasn't as clear. What we see in the passage from uh, Matthew 16 we've had read for us tonight is a clash of expectations about how it is that the world is going to be saved. Uh, Peter and Jesus have uh, different visions for what it looks like to rid the world of evil and to bring forth justice. And their clash actually raises a pointy question for you and me as well. Uh, We all actually have a vision of what it would look like to save the world, of what the issues are and what the solutions might be. The question that uh, this altercation between Jesus and Peter raises for us is, uh, does your vision for putting the world right actually match up with Jesus' vision? Are you on the same page? Do you have the same agenda as Jesus does for his world? Uh, This whole section of Matthew's Gospel has been leading up to this climactic moment that we finally get to tonight. Uh, There's been this underlying question all the way along. Who do people say that Jesus is? And now it finally is out there in the open. Jesus puts it directly to the disciples and they get it. Jesus is the Messiah. He is that promised king. But Jesus wants to make sure that they uh, properly understand what it really is going to mean for him to be the Messiah. You see, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah isn't all that matters. It also matters what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And Jesus says, he tells us here in this passage, that it's only this kind of Messiah, only the particular type of Messiah who Jesus came to be, that can actually do what our world needs to be saved. As we unpack these verses together tonight, we're going to um, skip over the first part of Jesus' conversation with Peter in verses 17 to 20. Um, All that stuff about uh, Peter being, you know, the rock and uh, Jesus building his church, all that stuff. There are two reasons for skipping over it. Uh, The main reason, if we're honest, is that 
there's not enough time to actually unpack everything in this passage. Um, and the stuff in that bit's a little bit weird. So we're going to skip over it. Um, but here's why I feel okay about doing that this time. Normally I'd feel pretty bad about that. Um, but actually, we've heard a sermon this year already on this passage. Uh, Andrew preached on this passage at our Vision Sunday service back in February about that beautiful promise that Jesus makes. I will build my church. Uh, and what that meant actually for us as a church at Christchurch in the West. Um, so I direct you to the website to go and listen to that sermon if you want to unpack verses 17 to 20. Uh, so we're going to focus in on verses 13 to 16 and then verses 21 to 23. And we're going to proceed by asking three questions. Question one, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? Uh, question two, why is it that Jesus must be this kind of Messiah? Question three, what therefore must this Messiah mean for you? So let's tackle each of those questions in turn. Uh, firstly, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? Uh, in Jesus' day, just as, uh, as is the case now, uh, when you ask someone who is Jesus, there are a whole bunch of different answers you might get. Uh, if you ask people that today, perhaps you'll hear the answer that he was some kind of holy man or a great moral teacher, that he was an example of love, that he was a revolutionary, that he was a tragic hero, uh, perhaps even that he was a madman or maybe even didn't exist. Uh, we get a bit of a picture of a conversation something like this here in Matthew 16 where Jesus leaves it open actually to, to answer however uh, the disciples see fit. And he wants to know firstly how it is that people in general perceive his ministry and who he is. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? All through Matthew so far, Jesus has been using this title, the Son of Man, to refer to himself. He's quite clearly already asking a question about himself here. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? The disciples reply, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Most people, the disciples are saying and reporting here, think Jesus is someone who's come to, to speak God's words to people uh, as a prophet. Uh, like John and Elijah and Jeremiah before him, he's been sent by God to speak against Israel's corruption, especially their corrupt leaders, and against the unjust and godless enemies of Israel. But Jesus wants to press in further with those who are closest to him, with those who have been seeing him up close in his ministry and following him around. So uh, he says to the disciples, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, Peter, answering on the disciples' behalf, says, uh, No, you're not merely a prophet. You're not just speaking God's word against injustice. You haven't come with a word against the rulers who make the world such an evil place. No, you're the king who God has sent to dethrone them to overwhelm their power, to take power in their place so the world might be full of peace and justice. You notice that Peter refers to Jesus as the son of the living God. And if you are listening in Psalm 2 that we had read, a classic kind of Old Testament description of the Messiah, uh, you are God's son, right? The God's son is the king who God had promised. And, and uh, Peter's drawing on all of that here and all of his knowledge of what the Old Testament says about the Messiah who was promised. You are that guy that we've been waiting for, he says. Uh, in Jesus' day, uh, the disciples were, were not in the minority. Many Jews were holding out hope that God would send this king, would send his Messiah, who would uh, lead a movement that would free Israel from oppression and bring justice and peace to the world at last. 
Uh, nobody knew at the time exactly when or where this king would come from, uh, though many believed that he would be a, a true descendant of King David. Uh, Peter says, uh, Jesus, we believe that you are that king, that you're the one who God has sent to finally put everything right. Uh, Jesus is delighted by Peter's reply. Uh, Jesus re responds, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You get it. He says, yes, that's who I am. He does something strange. Verse 20, he goes on, and uh, then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Weird. Come back to that in just a moment. Uh, what I want to see, uh, for starters, right here, is that Jesus accepts this. <laughs> He doesn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah in those words, but from what he says, it's clear that he's saying, yes, you're right. I am the one God has sent, and that is my mission to bring freedom to God's people, to be his king, to bring about his kingdom of hope and peace and justice in Israel and in all the world. Now the disciples have that clear, having their heads and their hearts that Jesus is the king who God has sent. He wants them to go further. He wants them to know not only that he is the Messiah, but to know what kind of Messiah he will be. And so we read in verse 21, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus accepts this role of Messiah, but he wants to make sure the disciples understand what it really means. To be the Messiah, Jesus says, means to suffer and to die and to be raised. To be the Messiah, he says, means not taking power, but giving it up. Not crushing the oppressor, but being crushed by the oppressor. Uh, among first century uh, Jews, there were um, competing expectations of what the Messiah would actually be like when he showed up. Uh, there's this uh, great guy, um, he's, uh, he died now, uh, died a number of years ago, his name's Martin Hengel. Uh, and uh, if you're anyone who has done any kind of research or study in um, the history of the early church and, and Judaism in the first century, he's the guy, right? He's held up there in very high esteem as uh, just one of the historians who's most well-versed, most influential in this field. Uh, he writes about uh, this idea uh, of the Messiah in the first century and the different ideas about what the Messiah would be like that were around. Uh, what he says is so important to note is that in the background of all of these ideas of what the Messiah would be like in the first century in Jesus' day, in the background to it all was the brutal oppression of the Roman Empire. Pretty much as bad as, as almost any regime actually that you see in the world around today. They were ruthless at crushing anyone uh, who uh, wasn't just straightforwardly one of them. They had an empire, you know this uh, thing you might have heard if you studied ancient history, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome? Not really peace at all. What Pax Romana means is if you put one toe out of line, you just get crushed by legions of, of, uh, of uh, Roman forces. There's this brutal oppression in the background. And so here's what Martin Hengel says. Despite the fact that there are different ideas about the Messiah competing uh, in the first century, it was most popular in nature and politically most effective to hope, he says, for a true military liberator whose military successes, like those of King David, would prove him to be the redeemer sent by God. Uh, given this hope was, was pretty widespread at the time, uh, it's no wonder that Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet that I'm the Messiah. 
If that's what people are hoping for, then the powers that be are going to hear anyone who claims to be Messiah and see them as a threat and crack down on them pretty quick. And Jesus doesn't want to bring that confrontation to a head just yet. He's got more to do before he gets to Jerusalem. So he says, don't tell anyone yet. It's too dangerous for people to know that I'm saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. Uh, interestingly, uh, historian Martin Hengel goes on to, to say that uh, this hope for a military Messiah was popular not so much with the scribes and the elders but with what he calls the unsophisticated circles of the people. Those who yearned for an end to oppression and bloody vengeance for the blasphemy committed by foreigners. Uh, it turns out that um, Galilean fishermen are pretty unsophisticated people and that's most of Jesus' disciples, right? Exactly the kind of people who we would expect from what we know of the first century to be longing for a military conqueror to come and kick out the Romans, that's who's hanging around with Jesus. And so it seems pretty clear that uh, Peter and the disciples expected something just like this of Jesus. For them, the obvious sequence of events from this moment, when Jesus has asked them and they've said, you're the Messiah, and he said, yes, I am, the obvious sequence of events now would go like this. March to Jerusalem. Recruit supporters from the countryside along the way. Wait for the right moment. Take the leaders in Jerusalem by surprise. Fight a battle to take over the temple and install Jesus as king. That's how God's kingdom was going to come. Jesus says, well, look, that's not the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. Instead, he says, in effect, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, but I haven't come to live, I've come to die. I'm not here to take power, I'm here to lose power. I'm not here to rule by the sword, I'm here, in fact, to love and to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. Uh, to quote Martin Hengel again, Jesus' claims as Messiah represented a radical break with the traditional features of Jewish expectation. From the perspective of traditional Judaism, he could appear, so to speak, as an anti-Messiah. Jesus is messing with the plan. He's upending the agenda and Peter is completely thrown. Have a look at verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. Pretty, you know, bold to rebuke Jesus to his face. Wow. Uh, what Peter's saying is this. He's saying, you can't suffer and die. You can't lose. That isn't how to get everything set right again. You have to fight and you have to win. There's no other way for us to, to have this victory. He's kind of going, what's gotten into you, Jesus? This is not how it goes. You know the game plan. This isn't it. As shocking, though, as it is to rebuke Jesus to his face, uh, Jesus' response to Peter might be even more shocking. He says, verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Uh, Peter seems to hear what, uh, Jesus seems to hear what Peter says here and go, he's just so wide of the mark at this point that there's something satanic about his response. Uh, he isn't, I think, actually calling Peter Satan here. Uh, he's reacting to the, the nature of the challenge that Peter's misunderstanding presents. Uh, notice what he says straight away afterwards. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. Jesus is saying, uh, Peter, don't trip me up. Don't get me off course. Don't put this temptation before me to be something other than what God has called me to be. 
Uh, it's interesting to note that the last time uh, that Satan was mentioned in Matthew's Gospel before here in chapter 16 was all the way back in chapter 4 uh, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Uh, what's the final temptation that Satan offers to Jesus there? He says, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. On the lips of Peter, Jesus is being faced with the same temptation here. Take, uh, take rule by force, by the sword. Be the king, be the one, be the powerful one who rules over everything. Uh, of course, Jesus could be the Messiah that Peter expects. He could take up the sword and beat down the Romans and impose God's kingdom through violence and rule as Israel's king and the king of the whole world. But he's just said that that isn't the kind of Messiah that he's called to be. That isn't the path that his father has laid out for him. That might be the human way of things, Jesus says, but it's not the way of God. Uh, now, Jesus has faced this temptation. You'll be pleased to know that I don't think you can be a stumbling block for Jesus in the way that Peter was at this moment. Jesus has, has done his work. He's become the king. He's followed the path his father gave him. So neither our ignorance about Jesus and his calling nor our sin can be a stumbling block for Jesus. Nevertheless, uh, this interaction with Peter, I think, shows us that it, it really is possible to get Jesus badly wrong with some pretty bad consequences. It's possible even to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, to follow him, and still, like Peter, to be pursuing your own agenda rather than Jesus' agenda. I don't want to dwell too long uh, on this right here because actually the passage we're going to look at next week will unpack some of those ideas a little bit more. But I think it's worth taking a moment to ask yourself, maybe do this during the week this week. Uh, not only that question of who do you say Jesus is, do you believe that he's the Messiah, uh, but to reframe and deepen that question as Jesus does for his disciples here. What kind of Messiah do you think Jesus is? Uh, is he actually a, a holy man to you, a kind of moral example that you try your best to follow? Uh, is he actually kind of like a genie in a bottle, someone who you call on when you want backup for your own desires and plans? Um, is he kind of like a, 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 you know, a, a little bit harsh sometimes, but overall a pretty nice kind of life coach? Just giving you bits of advice, but basically cheering you on from the sideline and affirming whatever decisions you might make? Jesus says very clearly, he is none of those things. He won't fit your agenda. So if you want a Messiah who will save the world, if you want a Messiah who can save the whole world, including you, Jesus says there's only one kind of Messiah who can help, a Messiah who will suffer and die for you. Why is that? And that's our second question. Why is it that Jesus must be this kind of Messiah? Uh, have a look with me again at verse 21. Uh, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Uh, Jesus uses a really strong word here. Did you notice that word? It's a small word, but an important word, must. Uh, and it's even stronger, actually, in the, uh, the original Greek that this was written in. The word that's used there is a word that almost always carries connotations of divine necessity. This is the word you use to say, this is what God has ordained. It has to be this way because this is the way that God has made it to be. Why is that the case? Why is Jesus so strong on this? Why is he so firm that this is the only kind of Messiah who can help? 
Jesus doesn't actually unpack the reasons for that here in Matthew 16, but the rest of the New Testament tells us uh, really that there are um, kind of three big categories of, of reasons, of necessities, of why this has to be this way. And what we read as you read the rest of the New Testament as it unpacks this story of Jesus is that for the Messiah to suffer and die is both a personal necessity, a legal necessity, and also a cosmic necessity. Uh, Firstly, it's a personal necessity for the Messiah to suffer and die because otherwise we will never be able to find or to give the love that we most desperately need. You see, human beings need love like we need air and water. You just can't live without love, actually. And maybe you know people, actually, who for whatever reason, through uh, circumstances uh, probably beyond their control, haven't received the kind of love that we need. It shrinks a person not to be loved. Because we need love, we can never really give love with the kind of selflessness that true love requires. You see, we look all the time for people whose love we feel would really affirm us in return. We love always, I think, partly for the love that we're getting in return. And so what we need personally is someone who really does love us absolutely for us and not for themselves. Because, of course, if we always love, uh, seeking love in return, then everyone else is doing that as well. And sometimes it's hard to know if other people actually love you for yourself or not, or if they're just trying to get something out of it. What we need is someone who really does love us absolutely for ourselves and not for themselves. Only that kind of love can give us what we need so that we can really and truly love others. Because we're so deeply assured that we're loved that we can love other people for their own sake. And that's exactly what Jesus does. You see, he doesn't need our love. He knows the love of the Father from all eternity. He is so deeply assured of his Father's love for him. He needs no other love. He wants our love. That, I think, is clear and good and beautiful. But he doesn't need it. And so by suffering and dying, by going to the cross for us, Jesus demonstrates a love that has no neediness about it at all. No hidden agenda. The Messiah must suffer and die so that we can really experience the true and complete love that we most desperately need and so become people in turn who can love like he's loved us. Secondly, it's a legal necessity for the Messiah to suffer and die. Uh, And that's because we just straightforwardly have debts that need to be paid. Uh, Wrongdoing of any kind brings debt. It might be uh, financial debt. It might be a criminal liability. Uh, it might be relational debt of some kind. You know when you hurt a friend of yours and you, you, have, you kind of have to do things to make it up to them, right? There are only two ways for debt to be dealt with, of course. It's to be paid or it's to be forgiven. Both of these things involve suffering. You see, either the one who owes the debt suffers the cost of paying the debt or the one who forgives the debt suffers by absorbing that debt by taking the cost on for themselves instead of enforcing it on someone else. And so it is with the evil in our world and uh, all the ways in which we've participated in it through our own sin. Uh, Sin can be paid for or forgiven. And so either we pay the cost or someone else absorbs it. The only way that we're going to be able to absorb the costs of uh, other people's uh, wrongdoing against us, right? the only way we're going to be able to be people who forgive is if actually you're just really deeply assured that your own debts have been taken care of. And so again, this is what Jesus does. 
In order to save the world, Jesus pays the cost. He pays our deepest debt. The Messiah must suffer and die so that we can be forgiven and in turn become people of forgiveness like him. Uh, Thirdly, it's um, what I've called a a cosmic necessity for the Messiah to suffer and die. Uh, And the reason for that is because uh, evil brings death. Uh, Death, according to the Bible, is the last enemy. It's the wages of sin. It's the end result of evil. Death is the defining and definitive sign that the whole of the cosmos is out of joint. That the whole way the world is isn't the way it's supposed to be. And death, of course, brings with it fear. We fear our own mortality in all kinds of ways, and we fear all those ways in which other people might take our life away from us. Along with death as the kind of uh, last enemy, there's all these kind of little deaths along the way, right? All the violence that might be done to us, all the ways in which we might be mistreated. And of course, this is why the corrupt and unjust systems and powers of our world always threaten death and violence. Because when you know that someone can kill you or hurt you, you're much more likely to do what they say. If death is the final enemy, then its power needs to be broken if we're ever to be free from fear and able actually just to live in freedom. And the only way the power of death can be broken is actually through death itself, because the only time when death's power ends is when life ends. And so again, what we see in Jesus is this, that he willingly gave himself over to death. But because his death wasn't the result of his own sin, his death broke death's power. The Messiah must suffer and die, and Jesus says on the third day be raised. That's the only way for us to be free from death's power. The Messiah must suffer and die and be raised to new life so that we can be free from the fear of death's power over us. Jesus says, I must be this kind of Messiah. No one who's going to ride into Jerusalem on a horse with a sword in victory. No one who will suffer and die and be raised. This is the only kind of Messiah, he says, that can actually put the world to rights, that can actually fix the world. Let me quote again from uh, the historian who I've been quoting from throughout so far. Uh, his, His conclusion about what Jesus says about this problem of evil and sin in the world. Uh, He writes, there's a fundamental difference between Jesus and the zealous revolutionaries of his day. For Jesus, the evil in the world was not to be found primarily in the social and political situation, in the priestly aristocracy or in the large landowners, but rather in the evil heart of the individual. He continues, the groundwork for God's kingdom, therefore, cannot be laid by the revolutionary transformation of certain political and economic structures. The liberation of the Holy Land, the breaking up of large estates, the emancipation of the slaves. No, the only thing that is capable of new human community is a transformed human heart. A transformed human heart is the only thing capable of doing good. And, Hengel concludes, Jesus' message and conduct, both of which proclaimed God's love, possessed this transforming power. You see, this is what we need, and it's only this kind of thing, actually, that will give us what we need to be able even to tackle very real issues of social and economic justice in the world. 
Even at a cosmic level, what we need is to be able to have this assurance that actually something's being done about the root of the problem in the heart, transforming hearts to make them new again. On a cosmic level, on a legal level, on a personal level, on every level, that's the kind of transforming power that you and I and this whole world needs. How does that transforming power actually work? How do we get it? In other words, and we're going to finish here, uh, what must this Messiah mean, therefore, for you? Uh, So many of our problems, uh, I think, come about because uh, we want to force things to turn out right. A lot of our energy in our lives, whether conscious or unconscious, is uh, about actually just trying to make sure that our, our life turns out the way we want it to turn out trying to control the outcome or at least mitigate outcomes uh, that are not the ones that we want. And so, in all kinds of ways, it might just be me. I think it's probably you guys as well. Let me know if it's not you. If it's just me, that's good to know as well, good self-awareness. Here's how I think that plays out. We, We try so often to force people around us to love us. And so much of the time, instead, what we do is just push them away. We try really hard to be the kind of person who doesn't have any debts, who works off all the debts that we owe, but instead we just end up digging ourselves in deeper and deeper and deeper as we find we can't pay the costs being asked of us. We try in all kinds of ways to cheat death, but even as you try to cheat death, as you try to put it off, as you try to ignore it, as you try to bury the fear of it under all kinds of other things, what it does for you is you just end up more afraid. Because actually as you try to cheat it and avoid it, you think about it all the more and you realise there's nothing you can do about it. You see, a whole lot of our temptations, maybe even all of them, result from trying to force things to turn out right, or at least to avoid the full effects of things going wrong. Uh, Here's the thing in this context to notice about Jesus. Jesus was the only one who's ever lived who could actually have pulled that off. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who actually could have snapped his fingers and gone, my life is going to be exactly the way that I want it to be. But that's not what he does. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 26, uh, we're uh, we're told the story of what happened the night before Jesus died. Uh, Matthew tells us that the elders and the chief priests sent a mob armed with swords to arrest Jesus. Uh, Peter, Matthew doesn't tell us it's Peter, but we know from the other Gospels, uh, Peter draws a sword This tiny little, I think it's like a large kitchen knife is really what's on view here. Like he's just kind of like, I'm going to do whatever I can to kind of, you know, take Jerusalem by force. And he pulls out a large kitchen knife. But it's effective at least enough to cut off the high priest's ear. Jesus turns to Peter and he says these words. He says, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think that I could appeal to my father and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? See, Jesus had angels at his disposal. Thousands of them. If he wanted to march on Jerusalem, he could do that. No questions asked. He's the only one who could ever have forced things to turn out right. He could have been the Messiah that the disciples expected. But that wasn't what his father had called him to. That wasn't the the Messiah that this world needed. Instead, Jesus resisted that temptation to take things into his own hands. And instead, he suffered. And he was personally betrayed by those he most loved. 
and he was crushed by a corrupt legal system and he gave himself up to the great enemy in death because that was the only way to save you and to save me and to save this whole world. So what must it mean for you that Jesus is this kind of Messiah? Well, if you know this Messiah, then you know the one whose love has broken the power of death so that you can finally live without fear. If you know this Messiah, you know the one who, whose love has paid all your debts so that you can begin even to carry the debts of others in forgiveness. If you know this Messiah, then you know the one whose love can really fill your heart to overflowing in the way that you most desperately need so that you in turn can become a lover of others. This, I think pretty straightforwardly, is what our world needs, don't you agree? This is the Messiah that we need, and this is who we have in Jesus. Let's give thanks to God for giving him to us. Father, we are so astounded that you are so able, uh, in this beautiful, beautiful way, to do what we most need on every level. Father, we want to thank you for sending a Messiah like this to us. Jesus, who would deal with our broken hearts, who would deal with the corrupt systems of our world, who would deal with death. Father, we thank you that by pouring his love into our hearts, you begin to transform us so that we might be the kind of people who the world needs as well. And so, Father, we ask, make his agenda our agenda. Help us to be on board with his mission of peace and justice and love and mercy in the world. Father, as we look to him, as we thank you for him, Make us, we pray, more and more like him. Amen.